wealthy people expect certain levels of service, which is understandable because that's they've got to that point in their life. And, and, and no one is, no one is asking a charity to overserve, but serve. You know, do do your bit, and nothing should ever go wrong. Hey everyone, my name is Alicia Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the chief executive here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique insight into both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand each other. And so we bring you season two of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into Major Gifts fundraising, straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, and I'm the producer of the show, and super excited to share this next episode with you. We interviewed Emma Turner, head of client philanthropy services at Barclays Private Bank. I'm joined here now by Emily, IG's senior advisor, who's going to tell you a little more about our conversation. Thanks, Rachel. Super excited to be on season two. So as listeners will surely know, Barclays Private Bank is an international financial institution. They provide a worldwide service from their regional centers that are in Europe, India, the Middle East, and North Africa. It was also one of the first banks to offer an in-house philanthropy service to its clients, and it aims to engage, educate, and support high net worth clients in their philanthropic journeys. To explore what a philanthropic journey really means, we were thrilled to have Emma on the show. As Rachel mentioned, she's the head of client philanthropy services at Barclays Private Bank and has been leading this service since its inception in 2008. She's an expert advisor to high net worth individuals and their families on their global giving strategies, and she was absolutely brilliant to speak to. On to the podcast. Let's do it. Okay, well, first off, welcome, Emma, to What Donors Want. We are so thrilled to be here in this amazing studio at Barclays Private Bank and so thrilled to have you on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Delighted to see you and very glad to have you here today. Amazing. All right. So, like all of our episodes, we start off with the slightly dreaded, but hopefully not speed round of, of uh, fun get to know you questions, which is um, really to promote the idea that, you know, we're all just people at desks doing jobs and we have common interests and funders and, and, and no matter who you are, we all, we kind of have those silly connections. So we have eight questions that we are going to speed round fire at you and you can say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> no pressure. Okay. Question number one. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Read people's minds. Um, what was the last TV show you binge-watched? So binge-watching for me is <coughs> two episodes at a go. <laughs> but I have to confess, I've just finished uh, the US version of The Killing on Amazon oh, Prime, and yeah. I was completely hooked on it. Yeah, it's a great one. Two episodes at a time is a perfectly respectable binge okay. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. That's like me. What was the last book that you read? God, I'm thinking about the one that I'm reading now. The Tattooist of Auschwitz, mm, yeah. which wow. was harrowing. Mm-hmm. Um, really glad I read it. I read a couple of books on that topic. And, it, and you found out in the end that it was a true story, and then it made it really remarkable. What's your favourite genre of music? Rock and roll and the Beatles. What's your favourite guilty pleasure movie? I'm going to have to say this for my husband, <laughs> The Shawshank Redemption. That's mm. a great one. Yeah, we both yeah. Yeah. love guilty. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it, it might not be mine... But he just loves it. <laughs> what would mine be? Something 
that would make me cry in a nice way. Like I cry when they find Lassie down the mine. Oh, no. You're too oh, young. My God. You're too young to remember who Lassie <laughs> yeah. is. Oh no, I, I remember but Lassie. Anything <laughs> like that? Yeah, that'll that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> I think I might know the answer to the next one from the weather you were googling outside. But what's your next dream travel destination? Well, I'm going to Luxor in Egypt on Monday. <laughs> Lucky me. But I'm a but I'm a, I'm a sun person, not a mm-hmm. cold ski icy person. Mm-hmm. Mm. If the world was going to end tomorrow, what would your last meal be? Oh, well, I've had this conversation, but we've called it like the death row dinner, yeah, which exactly. is kind of the same. Yeah. It would be roast chicken, roast potatoes, parsnips, carrots, mm-hmm. maybe red cabbage, definitely bread sauce, lots of gravy, and then a homemade double chocolate brownie and vanilla ice cream. Mm. Such oh my goodness. You can tell I've just made me hungry. Such a deeply British choice as well. I love it. Great. Love roast chicken. And final question. It's a very important one for IG. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Strong. <laughs> That's it. That's the speed round. You survived. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So now we will dive into the meat of the conversation, which is part two and exploring your work here at Barclays Private Bank. So Emma, as head of client philanthropy services at Barclays Private Bank, can you give us an overview of your primary responsibilities in this role? So my job here, which is an extraordinary one and a fantastic one, and I still think I got the best job in the world, is to help those clients that are wishing to engage in some form of charitable giving, because philanthropy may be a too big a word for them, Mm -hmm. or who have done some already and may possibly be sort of stuck, or even people that are quite a long way down the road, but don't talk about it very often. Because I think one of the things you have to remember is that people tend to do their giving on their own. It's not a collective. And so what we say to those clients are, if if you have a desire to be in this space, we have a philanthropy service. And what that means is that Emma can come and sit with you, find out who you are, where you want to go, how we feel we might get you there. And aside from having conversations with her, we've designed our own range of literature for them to take home, including um, a newly published last year, A Next Generation Guide. Mm-hmm. So it's not just for them, it's, it's for their families as well. And then we also do our own bespoke events. So you get a sort of 360 picture you hear it from others you can read it and then you can work your way through your own personal journey with me Mm. and you're using the phrase philanthropic journey um, which I like so once a client has decided that they want to engage in philanthropy or charitable giving or whatever size of phrase feels right for them what's the kind of typical philanthropic journey that you take them through I recognize there might be some variance so I would say that the people that I am probably of most used to and the people that I see most are the people that are really starting out. So they've had this, if you like, on their to-do list for a while, along with probably going to the gym, spending more time with my family, booking more holidays. And the idea for me is to get it off the to-do list onto the doing list. Mm. And it is, it's like a road ahead of you. So you need those that have gone ahead of you to kind of lead you down. And I suppose in a way to help them make less mistakes so it's really about, you know, are you, are, are you a starter? Are you, are, you, are you a little way down the road? Are you an expert? And then working out what they need to know uh, and how we're going to kind of teach them to get them to the level that they want to get to before they don't need a me. Because I don't want to be spending the rest of my life with them and they don't want me to either. Mm-hmm. But the idea is it's a bit like putting someone on a bicycle with stabilizers. At some point, we're going to take the stabilizers off and off you go riding the bike on your own. So that's really the journey. It's like a road that you're going to start walking down. Mm. And in terms of those kind of levels, 
levels of sophistication you just mentioned? You know, are you an expert in certain things? Where do you need most help? Where do you find that people um, mostly are when they first come to you? Is it that they have an area of passion that they know a lot about, they just need kind of support to get the philanthropy onto the doing list, as you said? Um, Or is it that they really are generally starting from the very beginning and they need support to to know where to even begin finding a cause? It's a bit of all of that and, and then some of it. I mean, I think one of the most interesting ones was a client that came to me and he'd put a substantial amount of money into a foundation and he knew where he wanted to give it. He knew the cause area and he said, but I thought it would take care of itself. And I went, no. And he said, no, it's not going to, is it? I mean, genuinely somehow thought he'd wake up one morning and know where to give this money and that he would find organisations really easily mm-hmm. and they'd all be brilliant and they'd be falling, they'd be the low-hanging fruit off the tree. Mm-hmm. So so you get some... I think most people, when they come to me, the reason that they're, they're ready to do this is that they've, they know where they are with their wealth and they know where they are in their life and the kind of what they need to spend their money on in the foreseeable future is sort of sorted. And what I mean by that is often charity begins at home. So they might start out by supporting their family, you know, doing their children's education, getting everybody set up, if you like, for life. And then they come to the bits that actually they've been holding back and waiting to do for themselves. Um, So I think they often have a sort of idea, like we know we might need a structure. We think we're a bit passionate about this. We think we might want the children to be involved. So it's not like they come with a completely blank sheet of paper, but then you might get more points underneath those different areas or you might get less. And so you basically work with them to kind of build it out into kind of like having a map, if you like. Mm And where they do come to the table with a desire to kind of involve their children or other family members in the giving journey and the kind of philanthropic strategy, how, how do you? What are the, some of the ways that you go about kind of integrating, you know, next generation philanthropists, but also engaging younger children in, in the idea of philanthropy? So I think that's why we did the guide because it 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 bore it it, it came from uh, increasing conversations about my children, and I think it starts off. So most of the clients I'm working with had to worry about the shopping bill at some point in their life, had to probably struggle for the rent, had to worry about the gas bill, and their children are probably never going to have to unless they enforce it on them. And so it's as much about helping their children, ensuring that their children have a social conscience and ensuring that their children understand the value of money. So I often say to them, if you're always taking them left on the aeroplane, please take them right at some point <laughs> if they're going to have to go right on their own because always going left is going to be a terrible shock. And they kind of laugh, but they get it. Mm-hmm. So that's how this often comes about. And then philanthropy is a sort of natural provider of that lesson, if you like, because it allows them to explore with their children, you know, some of the problems in the world, some of the things that they care about, you know, £10 will change this person's life, £20 will make a big difference. And the great thing about working, or it's very important about working with the next generation, is that you pitch it at the right level for them, both emotionally and also financially. So there's no point giving a 12-year-old £10,000. Like giving you a million pounds, you go, well, that's an awful lot of money, what am I going to do with it? So I'm very clear about helping them pitch it at the right level financially. And also it means again, why we wrote the guide is that, you know, they might come back from school one day and say, we're going to do, you know, sport relief, comic relief, we're going to do a a cake bake Mm. for something. And rather than sort of not really being that supportive of it, it's actually rolling up the season, making the cake with them, sitting down and saying, well, which bit of the sporting bit are you going to do? And actually just encouraging them to kind of develop that side of their life, if you like, as they're growing up. Mm. (laughs) And without naming any names, of course, what would you what would you be able to point to as kind of the most interesting philanthropic journey that you've seen in your career so far? 
It's the one I always come back to because it's the one um, that involves uh, a next generation. So it was a family I was working with and I went to visit them. I did not know what I was going to be asked to do other than we want to get the kids involved. And it was a couple and they'd both been married before. So they both had children from their first marriages and they had a child together. And they sat down and they said, right, so the two older boys are in their early 20s. They were at university and the father had taken some money out of their inheritance and put it into the, cha- the family foundation. So they had some skin in the game that was really theirs. Fine. Then we'd like to talk about the eight-year-old. And then we'd like to talk about the four-year-old. And I'm sitting there going, I have, whoa, okay, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> Philanthropy daycare. Exactly. <laughs> so I said, so the two older boys, I said, so I suggest they go out. And in the next six months, they find two charities that they feel they should bring to the table for the family to support. And I would give them a a number that aligns with their allowance, again, going back to the figure about the amount being appropriate. Okay. The four-year-old sponsored animal at the zoo for a couple of years. That'll keep him happy while we work out, because four's very young. Mm. Now, the eight-year-old was the really fascinating one. And I said, what does he like? And they said he likes the money jar in the kitchen. I said, okay, have him count the money jar. And then have him bag up the money in bank bags and take him to the bank. So he begins to understand the process that money goes into a bank and that's where it goes. But he gets half of it and the other for his for himself, for his own little money account. And the other half, he has to work out what charity is going to get it. So they said, fine. So a few months later, they called me and they said, we can't we can't believe what happens. I said, well, I'm saying, well they all, we all sat down around the table. And he'd counted the money, by the way. There was £120. So he got 60 quid and 60 pounds for charity. So they all sit around the table and the two older boys go, oh, Dad, sorry, been really busy. <laughs> Haven't really got round to it. Let's just give it to the charity you always give it to. So he was less, Beth, not at all happy about that. The eight-year-old stands up with a piece of paper and says, uh, I've got 60 pounds and I want this to go to... Uh, my friend at school died last year. And her mummy has started a charity and I want my money to go to her charity so so that I can remember her. Mm. And they just all sat there and the two older brothers were like, he's just blown us out the water (laughs) and he's eight. So the mother, who was like kind of in tears about the whole, they said, that's great. And she said, and we'll match it. So Mm -hmm. you give them 60, we'll give them 60. And then she rang the mother to find out that this poor mother was completely overwhelmed. She'd bitten off far more than she could chew. And so they then paid for someone to help her run the charity for three years, all because a child counted a money jar. Mm -hmm. So what I say to people is, is never underestimate children's ability to do things quite extraordinary they have such imaginations Mm -hmm. and if you give them the basics like this kid and I go back to that story every time because I have I have every story is different every story is fantastic but that's my kind of number one Mm -hmm. story because a it involves the whole family but it also involves an eight-year-old yeah I think it's so amazing as well to kind of learn from bringing that kind of childish innocence and you know not getting caught up in the complexities and Mm -hmm. the you know, finances and the marketing and, you know, everything else, just to really being moved by something and and understanding where someone was in need and being able to see that. I think that's a beautiful story. Yeah, Mm. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that example. I think now it would be great to kind of zoom out a bit onto the the space in general, so the space of of institutions and particularly financial institutions incorporating, if they do, philanthropic services into what they can offer clients. And we know that you've been a player in this space for quite a while now, so it would be great to hear what your experience has been, what trends you're seeing, and and kind of how that's informed your work here at Barclays Private Bank and why, why the bank decided to create its own philanthropic division back in 2008. 
So that's a very good question. Um, and I think there are still remarkably few financial institutions. I'm not going to name them all, but there are, well, there's, there's less than six and more than two. You can figure out how many probably. Um, <laughs> we were the second to become a player in this space. I think I call it enlightened self-interest, which is not my expression, but it's a very useful one because I think it takes an enlightened firm to really have the belief that someone like me, who is a cost center, can add the kind of value to client relationships that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it becomes a differentiator. Um, and I think now we've been doing this for 10, just over 10 years that we that we found our place amongst that group. I would like to think that we're probably, I would say probably the best, but someone else can make that judgment outside of me. But I think we have a very good reputation for what we do and how we do it. We've grown it or I've grown it because I'm only I'm the only person that does it here. It's grown organically. So it's been driven by the things that I'm hearing from clients and then trying to find the right things to come up with those answers for them. I think all of us that are doing this would love to see more people doing this. And I think we're all amazed that there aren't more financial institutions who have an in-house philanthropy advisor. And I think it goes back to that enlightened self-interest. I think a lot of businesses are driven by the bottom line. And so there was never a guarantee that I would make this firm money from doing this. And there was no ask that I would or that I should, mm -hmm. which is why I took the job. They felt that it was an important value add service and that we would have enough clients that would want guidance in this space to warrant doing it. And we can effectively give numbers and examples and stories as to the success of that and the truth to that. So I think all of going back to I think all of us would like to see the growth. And I guess it's because there aren't that many enlightened institutions that are willing to take, if you like, the risk of hiring mm -hmm. a me, because it's a risk. You don't know how it's going to turn out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's really probably why it hasn't it hasn't grown more. Yeah. That's so interesting. And, and so would you say that uh, you, you kind of touched on this already, but that in the past 10 years, it, it, the demand for it has grown among your clients and that it's really kind of proven its worth? within Barclays private bank undoubtedly and that has partly to do with how our our own private bankers talk about it to clients right. and the more comfortable they get about it and yeah. the more they see how important this is to clients yeah. so it's a in the early days in, in how I was you know because I spent a lot of time training them and talking mm -hmm. to them and explaining that they haven't got to be the expert in this but they've got the expert yeah um I think it was always going to be attraction rather than promotion. So mm -hmm. when a banker has a successful meeting with a client and they go back and sit at their desk and they talk about it and other ears prick up and go, oh, that sounds interesting. What did you do? Well, I took that Emma Turner to a meeting and she did all this <laughs> with them. But it really is. It's sort of, you know, bankers are like anything. They're, they're quite possessive and protective. Um, but they also, you know, want to be the best banker they can be. And I think in, in, in the modern day, you've got to have a range of things at your fingertips to be able to offer clients so they can kind of pick and choose off the menu. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about, I think, philanthropy is no client ever asked us to do this. And mm -hmm. no client has ever asked us to do this mm -hmm. in 10 years. And yet I've seen over a 1,000 clients. Wow. And so if you create the right supply, mm -hmm. the demand comes. Mm -hmm. Um, and so now the bankers wear it like a sort of badge of honour. We've got we've got Mrs Turner and the philanthropy service, but it's lovely. <laughs> it's like they sort of wheel out this old biddy. Um, but uh, I think it's it, it's something now that they that they really get. But I think the other thing is it is a slow burn. Mm -hmm. This is not something that catches like wildfire overnight. You have to keep going back and reminding and reminding and giving them the literature and telling them. And, and I tell them a lot of stories. 
I bring this alive to them. And so therefore they go, oh, okay, so I've got, because it's no straw person you can draw after 10 years and say, if you've got this kind of client in your book, they're more likely to want to do this. Mm-hmm. So if you tell them stories all the time about this week, I saw that person, that week I saw that person, they start to then say, oh, maybe I've got one of those in my book. Maybe I should. Or they read something about it in the paper saying that they've started a foundation. So over 10 years, we've kind of, I think we finally got it, basically, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. hope. Yeah, it's interesting to to hear about the internal stakeholder journey that you've that you've gone through with everyone at Barclays and with the relationship managers, and and it's great to hear that it's now in a really kind of solid place to to grow this offering. And speaking of which, also your personal passion. I mean, you you clearly you're just you come to this with so much passion. It's so obvious, and it would be great to hear about what personally has motivated you to to pursue jobs like this and positions and to grow an offering like this within Barclays. I've been, yeah, I mean, I've had an extraordinary career. I've done the most random things. I've worked in fashion. I've worked in yacht racing. I've worked in advertising. I've been a fundraiser. <laughs> wow. I've been a corporate grant maker. And, and then I came here. And I think everything I've done has led me to this one, probably my last big job. Mm-hmm. Um, my passion, I think I, think I, have, a, I have an internal and an external one. So my internal one is that all of our clients know about this, so they know that they can avail themselves of it. I would absolutely hate them to go somewhere else and not come here first. Um, so I think that's a kind of that's my own kind of internal kind of driver to make sure that any new banker who arrives, you know, because I built relationships throughout the firm. It's not just about the relationship managers. You've got investment advisors, you've got the marketing team, the media team, the events team. You know, you want all of them to know about it because you never know who they're going to meet. You never know who they're going to sit next to you at a, at a function mm-hmm. that they might say, well, we do this and that person, you know, their ears pick up. They go, oh, that's interesting. My kind of other passion, and it was something I was asked to do a, a TEDx talk in, in, in Zurich, in Switzerland last year, on, and, I, and I, the topic I chose was smart giving. And I talked about having the sort of five ingredients of, of, of how to be a smart giver. You have to watch the TED talk to know what, what, the, what the ingredients are. But, but the idea is, is that with very little information, you can become a much smarter giver. And I think it's really important that people know that they can be and know that it's important um, and so my passion is that everybody who gives any kind of money to charity does it as smartly and as effectively as they can. That's a brilliant answer. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's it's a it's a mission and a, a passion that we share as well at IG because you know we're philanthropy advisors as well, and we're really we really believe in the power of that kind of service and about challenging clients and bringing them on that journey and mm. and giving smartly because we we can't afford not to. No. I have a follow-up question on the relationship manager side, which is um, obviously every case is slightly different, but um, one of the most common questions we get from people working within financial institutions is when is the right time to kind of bring philanthropy up with a client? You mentioned that you don't have people coming to you, you know, but you are still seeing thousands of people. So what would your answer to that question be? Like, when is the right time to start speaking with a client about the idea of philanthropy and the role it could play in there? So I think the sooner the better. Why hold back? I think it's if it's a new client, it should very much be part of these are the things that we can help you with. This is this is our offering. Mm. And I think if it's a client that maybe you've inherited from another banker because they've moved on or they've gone to another part of the business, it would be one of the first things again. You say, look, you know, I'm, I'm new to looking after you. I want to cover a few things just to make sure that you know about all the stuff that we do do, even though you've been with us for a while. So I, th- I think there's no... There's no wrong time, uh, but the right time is as soon as possible. Mm. Even if it's not on their radar now, 
I meet clients who aren't going to do anything for two to three years. But when they've talked to me, they realise there's quite a lot to start thinking about. Yeah. And the sooner you start thinking, the sooner you'll be able to do the doing part of it. So I would say the sooner the better. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I and I agree. And I think that sometimes people wait to think about it until they've had a major liquidity event. You know, they've sold their company or whatever. And, and then it's, it's on top of all the other things you have to think about at that point. It means that you're not such a smart giver when it actually comes yeah. down to it. You need to do that prep work. Mm-hmm. So... Talking more specifically about fundraising, which I'm very pleased to hear you have some experience of yourself. A lot. <laughs> um, obviously, the other side of the equation when you have clients who, you know, whether they're an eight-year-old uh, or, or kind of a, a, a long-term client of the bank, when they're thinking about which causes to support, uh, at not just in terms of fields, but also specific organizations working in those fields, uh, the other side of that equation is the organization themselves and, and the fundraiser that's advocating for the importance of that cause. So in your experience, what is it that makes... Um, your clients' lives easier and also makes their lives harder when it comes to making noise and raising their own profile and saying, hey, this this is a cause you should really care about, eight-year-old uh, and, and parents, uh, but also the kind of relationship building that goes into making a partnership when people are making really significant decisions around their philanthropy. So I've kind of, at this point in my life, I've seen it all when it comes to charities, good, bad and indifferent. Um, and I think the indifferent is actually the worst you know, you can, mm-hmm. the good is good, you can usually fix the bad, but it's mm-hmm. the indifferent bit in the middle. And I think the things that I think are really important, and if I'm doing talks to fundraisers, which I do sometimes to really help them understand my, my world a bit better, I think there's a lot of myths around high net worth people. I think people think they're this amorphous group of people that yeah. sort of hang out <laughs> behind the glass screen and they're no different to any of us sitting in this room today, but they've got a bit more money in the bank. And they wouldn't want to be thought of differently. But I think um, if a fundraiser wants to approach any donor, and they should have the same basic fundraising principles no matter who the person is, because first of all, you never really know. You never know how wealthy anybody is. Sometimes they don't know themselves. So it's... <laughs> but. Um, you need to have a re- first of all. You need to be. You, you really. You really need to know your stuff. You need to know your what your your organisation. Um, I think you need to be passionate about it, because that then resonates with the person you're talking to. Like you said, it's obvious to you that I'm passionate about this. Imagine if I just sat here and talked about it in a monotone frame of mind. <laughs> I think you've all be probably snoring by now. <laughs> and I think you want to have a very articulate uh, and clear ask of what you're asking them, you know, what you're what you're asking them for. Mm. Um, and also, not to over-talk. Um, <laughs> I've had a lot of clients say that they, I sat down with them and half an hour later they, they drew a breath. <laughs> and they're sort of, and I can understand that because you're panicky a bit because you're in front of someone who hopes he's going to give you money. So, so I think, but just, you know, just, you know, calm down if you're, you know, approaching someone, having a conversation with them. I think the second thing, increasingly is not just my clients, but anybody, which is part of the smart giving idea, is that you really want to be able to articulate the impact of the work that you're doing on the problem Mm -hmm. and what the person's donation will contribute towards that impact. Because I think, you know, everyone can make different choices these days. I often say to charities, you know, you want to be the John Lewis of charities, never knowing and undersold. And once someone has found you, they don't want to shop anywhere else. And it's the same kind of idea, but you really must be able to say, if you give us X, it will achieve Y. Reporting, you know, varies from person to person. I'm not going to go into that. And then I think the other thing which I always find fascinating is you need to ask for the money. You're a fund (laughs) raiser. That means you're going to talk about money. And, of course, being British, we don't talk about money. (laughs) 
And so I always <laughs> sort of say, you know, you can get to that part in the conversation where you say to the potential donor, now we're going to have the tricky conversation about money because they, they are used to being asked for money. You're mm-hmm. sitting there, they're used to dealing with money. And they've said, a lot of clients said to me, well, they never asked me for any money. And it wasn't my job to kind of do that bit of the conversation. So I think... Yeah. Those would be the three things that I would say, you know, really kind of focus on and try and get right. Um, the things that, that I've had from clients when they've often come to me and they've kind of stopped giving because they're very disappointed in some situation that's, that's come across. And really it boils down to two things, engagement and stewardship. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of charities are lazy. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but you are. Um, and the charity that, you know, follows up, you know, asks you what kind of engagement you want, listens to it. You know, if I don't want to do this, please don't send me that kind of invitation. And a week later, an invitation arrives. Mm -hmm. It just looks like you haven't listened. Mm -hmm. You can always ask someone what level of engagement they want and be very clear about what you can provide and what you can't provide. It doesn't matter if you can't provide everything somebody wants. Talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But those are the things that really kind of disillusion people about the sector. And it it taints everybody. Mm -hmm. In the Mm -hmm. end, if one charity gets it wrong with a donor, they've got it wrong for all charities. And so I would say that goes back to that indifference. Never, ever treat a donor indifferently. Mm. If, you, if you treat them with respect and you keep them engaged and, you, and they know what's going on, even if it's bad news, you know, say there's a, the chief executive suddenly resigns, don't let them read it in the newspaper. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Find a way to let them know and they will only, they will only thank you for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've heard that a lot from podcast, podcast guests who, yeah. Who, yeah, who, who speak about that specific example as well. Definitely. And yeah. I think that the issue of uh, public trust and the way that, mm-hmm. you know, one charity's mistake reflects on the experience of uh, all donors and how likely they are to kind of give and give in that way again in the future is something that makes it a very challenging sector to work in as a fundraiser and something that you have to always be very mindful of. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see any patterns or differences in the way clients approach philanthropy based on the, uh, well, two things. One, the source of their wealth, because you mentioned that some of the clients you work with, you know, they've experienced not being able to pay the bills and now they're in the position to be a philanthropist. Uh, but also, you know, the difference between inherited and self-made wealth as well. And then also coming at philanthropy from within a financial institution, obviously coming with kind of a wealth management investment mindset. Do you see any kind of trends or patterns in the way that people approach the experience of giving, the kind of reporting they might want, the standards they expect from the relationship that they have? So, I mean, a lot of the time I don't actually end up knowing where the client gives their money or who they give it to, because that's not part of my role. My role is to teach them how to do that, but mm. not to do it. But but I would I would hazard, I mean, not even a guess. So so um, there is less and less inherited money in, in, in the old-fashioned sense. And I think what went with that was you are the custodian of the family silver. And so it is your job to keep as much intact before the next generation comes whether that's the home and that would also that and there would often then be sort of a family history of giving to particular types of organizations and I think probably up until quite recently that just carried on regardless entrepreneurs or people who've made money you know in a different way um they're used to making it losing it and making making it again that doesn't bother them Mm -hmm. at all it would if it went on but I mean eventually at some point they seem they seem to kind of find the thing that, that that is successful for them and so, and I would also, um, from what I've seen, is that they are—they have a willingness to, if you like, fund something which they, they are less risk averse, or are they more risk averse. Anyway, 
they risk doesn't scare them as much, whichever <laughs> one that is. You can tell I'm not a banker. Um, um, so, so they will often, uh, if you like, not take a punt. That's a terrible way of explaining it. But, but they will be more willing to um, maybe fund a newer charity, something that's smaller, something that's doing something a bit grittier, mm. um, something that may be less sexy, mm-hmm. less traditional. Um, and often they will also want to use their own skills, if they can, to help the organisation. I, I have to be quite careful with clients like that because sometimes they think they can go in and change everything and make it better, and they can't always. You know, They're yeah. very well-intentioned, but actually, mm, you know, stick making the money, let them. But at the same time, there are some incredibly bright people who've got enormous amounts of energy. So, so channeled in the right direction. And there are some organisations that you can sign up to work with that will help you work with charities, which is where I would prefer someone did it that way. Yeah. Um, but I would say that, yes, yeah, so going back to it, so, so the, 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 the um, old-fashioned inherited money was all about keeping you know, enough mm-hmm. for the next generation. A lot of our clients, it's like, actually, we're not going to sort our kids out. You know, we're, we're going to let them sort themselves out. That's not my job in life. So if I want to blow it all, I'll blow it all sort of thing. Um, and so they are, their appetite for doing things is, is slightly more energetic and slightly different. We see so many of those things reflected <laughs> <laughs> in the way in our clients as Definitely. well. So it's glad to know that it's not just us. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's it's exciting for the space of fundraising yeah. to, to move forward and to, with this transition of wealth, with the shifting approaches to philanthropy yeah. and with yeah. appetite for risk, we need yeah. that more than ever. Yeah. And, you know, arguably. So I'm, I'm really excited yeah. to see how, good. how that's going it's to good. Yeah, change fundraising yeah. practice, what the implications are. Yeah, that and I think that group too can also be quite, can be help, can, can be challenging in a helpful way way they're gonna they're gonna push they're gonna push back and go but why don't you try this you know you could be better at Mm -hmm. that whereas I think typically up till 10 years ago we just we just took whatever a charity said per se yeah which was great for the charity nothing wrong in it but now I think donors are becoming more inquisitive about really so but what have you tried it this way Mm -hmm. or could we do it that way or what if I gave you this and I think that's good for the sector that donors are kind of like rolling up their sleeves and getting a bit more involved in their own giving. I think so too. And I also think it's a really interesting call to action for charities to also kind of push back and say, I agree with that, but I don't agree with this point. Mm. And to really come to the table with their sleeves rolled up too and to be a partner, not just to be a grantee or a recipient, but to to be equal. Well, it should be a two-way relationship. Absolutely. And and that's obviously something that we advocate for. We actually have some charity Mm. client or a specific charity client that I have in mind that um, we're doing that really well, so well that their client... Their donors ended up coming to them and asking if their philanthropy was strategic enough. So they were saying, like, are we doing this well enough? Like, please oh, give us well, feedback on yeah, how we're doing. That's perfect. Yeah. So clearly it can it can pay off if you really do approach it like a partnership yeah. in that way. Definitely. Yeah. It's exciting. Um, so a, a question for you, which you've you've briefly touched on, but I want to delve into it a little bit more, which is about, so once, once a, a client, a donor, has made a gift to a charity and that, that relationship has begun, you've mentioned that one of the um, one of the faux pas are, you know, not listening and following up with the invitation after they've said, I don't want any invitations, <laughs> and, uh, and being a little bit too systematized in a way that doesn't feel bespoke or, mm. um, you know, uh, appropriate for that specific relationship. But in your experience, going off of that, what other common mistakes do you see charities and fundraisers making after a gift has been committed that turns clients off from further engagement and from deeper and and more robust engagement down the line well I think you know I think I think it is that indifference thing and I keep going back to it but I think you know people are not complicated (laughs) (laughs) they have money yeah they want to make the world a better place they found an organization they like 
They've done their due diligence and research. It seems to be the right organisation for them. It aligns itself with their giving objectives. They call them, they meet them, they work out. They're going to give them a donation. Is it you know, going to be one year or three years? What it's going to be for? And then the job's kind of done from the donor. I mean, you know, so, 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 so they get to that point. They hand the money over. You would hope that there's been a discussion about what kind of reporting would you like, you know, is it six months, is it a year? Well, actually, for that level of money, we can do this. And then I would I would guide the donor to say, you don't give them the second year's money until you're happy that the first has been spent. And it just, go, it just goes dead in the water. <laughs> and, like, nobody hears anything or nobody sends a report. And it's and it's and it happens time and time again. I mean, I've had this personally with my own donations, and I've had it actually in America, where I I always put them up to be the gods and goddesses charity and nonprofits, and actually <laughs> they've been worse. Some of them. We have a family thing in America that we do, and it's like really, really, that's not the conversation we had, and yet you're trying to do this. So, so I think it's it it goes back to uh, you know once once you've got someone, try and keep them. Once you've lost them, they've gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know, it re- there really isn't any more complicated than that. And I think the other thing is that, you know, people, clients build relationships with people. They build relationships with financial advisors. They build them with lawyers. They build them with accountants. They like to ring up and who they're talking to, and they build relationships with the fundraiser. So if the fundraiser goes, mm-hmm. and the charity does nothing, and they don't, you know, write to that, you know, I'm talking about you know people are giving larger donations to say. You know, Emma Turner's, you know, left the party, but, you know, Jane Jones is going to be taking over. When would you like an introduction? It's like, do that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, kind of said, I called and the person had gone and they didn't know who the person was I should be talking to and I didn't know. And it's just like, they're, they're, you know, wealthy people expect certain levels of service, mm-hmm. which is understandable because that's, they've got to that point in their life and, and, and no one is, no one is asking a charity to overserve, but serve you know do do your bit and nothing should ever go wrong mm-hmm. so with all of that in mind <laughs> if you could question. just leave one key thing for our listeners to take away what would you want it to be that they took away from this conversation that philanthropy advice is a really good thing that you don't have to be alone in your giving there are all sorts of ways to get advice you can get it through friends you can get it through peers you can get it from ig you can get it from websites you can get it from books and if you want to get it from barclays private bank you can become a client and then you get me and what we do here (laughs) so if there's anyone out there looking for a fabulous philanthropy advisory service you know where to come but i think it's just that, that that philanthropy advice is a really useful thing to have in your life in whatever shape or form it works for you Mm. and from a charity perspective you mean you've mentioned a lot of things that I'm sure our listeners will take away and kind of put into practice in a charity environment but uh, is there any kind of key thing that you would like people to hear from that side never assume because you'll never know and do the best job you can and you'll be fine amazing amazing thank you so much thank you Emma this has been an an unbelievable conversation. It's been so interesting to hear your stories, your experience, and I know that it's going to have so much value for our listeners. So thank you for your time and for hosting us and for this amazing afternoon. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Emma, as well as the Barclays Private Bank team for their generous time and support. 
As always, we love to hear from you guys. So if you have any questions or comments or even requests for guests we should interview for our second season, you can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is IG underscore advisors or come find us in London. We'd love to take you for a tea, not a coffee. (laughs) Coming up soon, we have an incredible author and philanthropic thought leader, as well as a few more live events down the line. So stay tuned. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.